0: From February to April 2020, the unemployment rate rose from 3.5 percent to 14.7 percent, the highest unemployment rate and the largest monthly increase in the history of the data. By May 2020, the unemployment rate had declined to 5.8 percent, but the 9.3 million people who were unemployed remained well above the 5.7 million in February 2020, prior to the COVID-19 pandemic. What will it take to get these people back to work? In fact, will they go back to work? Will some who are on the cusp of retirement leave the labor force? For others, will the experience with COVID change the way they view employment? And what are the implications of all of these points for economic growth, inequality, poverty, and the careers of young people just starting out in the workforce? To address these questions, I'm very pleased to be joined in this episode of of Econofact Chats by Jason Furman. Jason is a professor at the Harvard University School of Government at the Kennedy School. He spent eight years as a top economic advisor to President Obama, including serving as chairman of the Council of Economic Advisers from August 2013 until the end of the Obama administration. Prior to that, he was a director of the Hamilton Project at the Brookings Institution. And before that, he served on both the Council of Economic Advisors and the National Economic Council during the Clinton administration. Jason, welcome to Econofact Chats.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Jason, to set the stage, can you describe what happened to the economy and to jobs in the spring of 2020? Yes,
1: yeah, so in the spring of 2020, we had the first phase was what I call the collapse just you know, tens of millions of jobs disappearing overnight. And in circumstances, you know, that was in some ways, better than the alternative because you couldn't have people going to work. You couldn't have them producing things for people that didn't wanna buy them. It would have been incredibly unsafe. And so the question was you know, more, what are you going to do to make sure there are jobs at the other end? And what are you going to do to protect people um, in between? We then had a partial bounce back where we had some of the fastest job creation we've ever seen in the history of the country. Some of those people were recalled back to their jobs, but we're still you know, way short of where we started in terms of employment. And now it's increasingly safe. There's people who want to buy things. It's increasingly safe, not all the way there, um, to be doing work again. And so you know, now um, all of the job loss that we continue to face is you know, unambiguously much more of a problem.
0: So how did the different source of this recession as compared to, for example, the 2008 Great Recession require a different set of policy responses. As you were alluding, you didn't really want people to go to work. But now what's going on that distinguishes the policy that we should be pursuing from the policy that we were pursuing or should have been pursuing, say, in 2009 or 2010?
1: Yeah, this was a very different recession than you know, almost any one that we've ever had. It was precipitated by a supply shop. Which is, it became hard to make things and do things, as opposed to by a demand shock. Demand shock, you can't afford to buy things anymore. Now, supply and demand get intermingled because once everyone was to go to work because of the supply shock, that would also have caused a big reduction in demand. But the policy response to this recession is the other thing that makes it very different from the past ones. We responded in a much, much larger way. A total of about $5 trillion was spent um, in multiple packages of which three were particularly large, the CARES Act, one in December, and then the American rescues plan again this year. And what that $5 trillion allowed policymakers to do was to create a disconnect for the first time in a recession between what happened to GDP. It went down a lot, which meant the economy produced a lot less than it used to. But disposable personal income, that's the amount of money that households got from their job, plus the government, minus what they paid in taxes. Disposable personal income went up by the most it had gone in decades. And so policymakers created a disconnect between the job loss and the income loss that people had in the economy and what happened to their household financial situation.
0: So as you're mentioning, there is a huge infusion of money to people, but a lot of times they didn't get a chance to spend it. For example, you couldn't go out to the movies, you couldn't go to restaurants, What do you see as the potential for spending now that the pandemic, at least in areas that are well vaccinated, seems to be on the wane? Will there be a huge burst of spending coming up from that?
1: I think there's more spending to come, but there's a lot of uncertainty around that. We're very used to the spend out of stimulus payments in normal times. These are not at all normal times. People initially spent their checks on things like, cars, furniture, and sporting equipment. And we've seen the price of all of those soaring. Um, Services spending remained down in the latest data that we have, which was for April. You know, as we see the May and June data, I expect service spending to be back at trend and probably rise above it. Fed Chair Jay Powell said people can't go to dinner twice a night That's true, but they can go out to dinner more often than they did before. And I think there'll be some eagerness to do that at least um, over the next couple of months.
0: Well, maybe they won't go out twice a night, but maybe they'll order two desserts now in in, uh, enjoyment of being able to go out again. So Jason, what you're suggesting may imply that inflation is going to be a real problem. And we've seen high inflation numbers, although Some of that is comparing year to year. So last year at this time, of course, prices had fallen. What do you think about the prospects for higher inflation? Will it just be in some goods and services? And so in that way, it's not general inflation. Or do you think there is really a strong prospect for general ongoing inflation, as some people are warning?
1: I think the there is tremendous uncertainty about inflation because we've never gone through anything of this magnitude in terms of supply shock, demand shock, reallocation across the economy. I tend to expect more inflation and more persistent inflation than is the headline of most forecasters. A lot of what we've seen to date is things like car prices spiking but going forward, there's a number of shoes that haven't dropped yet, like housing prices rising, some wage price pressure spirals. And the biggest fear people have is that expectations for inflation become de anchored.
0: Yeah, we have a nice recent memo by Menzi Chin of the University of Wisconsin. And he talks about the sources of inflation and points out the importance of expectations. And of course, in the 1970s, this was a very big deal because people embedded into their expectations ever higher inflation. And it took the very deep recession that began in 1979 to wring that out of the economy. But do you think that people will in fact change their views from what Ben Bernanke called the great moderation and expectations could really spike up in a way that could lead us back to something like the 1970s? Or do you think that there's a chance that people will understand this is kind of a temporary blip and the view of the Federal Reserve and the monetary policy that will be pursued will keep expectations low?
1: Right, so I think the bad case here is the 1960s. And then you can argue how bad a case that actually is. In the 1960s, the inflation rate drifted up from about 1.5% to about 5% over the course of several years. Um, One of the problems in the 1960s is prices rose more than wages. And so real wages fell as a result of this inflation, which made it unpopular. I don't think we'll be in anything like um, the 1970s. And in terms of expectations, HR offices are going to be meeting in September to figure out what wage raises to give for January of next year. They might be looking at inflation numbers like 4% and asking themselves, you know, if inflation is 4%, we're gonna to have to give our employees more than that in a raise for next year.
0: Jason, the other side of macroeconomics, besides inflation, of course, is unemployment. Those are the two big issues in macroeconomics. And there's been a lot of controversy lately about why millions of people are still unemployed. Uh, fact that I alluded to into the, in the introduction, people have pointed to a variety of different reasons. It could be the workers' concerns about disease, worries about the continuing absence of childcare, especially since this recession seems to have hit women particularly hard, and perhaps even generous unemployment benefits that have kept people from going back to work or just some deeper psychological thing, people are really reevaluating what they want out of their jobs. I know that you and Melissa Kearney have some very interesting recent work about the absence of childcare. Can you talk about that a little bit?
1: Yeah, so childcare in particular, I had been citing it as one of the reasons, and I did that without doing any calculations. And then I just did a quick one, which was you know, mothers are about 10% of the workforce, And mothers' employment hasn't declined that much more than employment has for other groups. And so if you ask how much extra did mothers reduce their employment relative to others and multiply that by the share of the population, you find that only about one or 2% of the overall jobs decline can be explained by this. Fathers have actually increased their work And so what I concluded from this is that childcare is a really big problem in our country, but a lot of the problem is that people are still working and having to balance a child at the same time. And so in some ways, it's almost more stressful than what we thought before. It's just not taking as big a toll on the employment data as we thought before.
0: So it is a problem, but it's not a problem in that dimension. I think it's very good that, You had this prior view, you looked at the data and you were able to adjust your view. Um, That's sort of along the lines of what Kane said, when the situation changes, I change my views. What do you do, sir? when he was challenged about that. What about the role of unemployment benefits, Jason? What do you think that role has been in perhaps keeping the number of uh, unemployed as high as it's been?
1: Uh, I think it's almost certainly slow job creation, I think for the first part of this year, that was a good thing. We didn't want everyone rushing back to work in January and February, we gave them a lifeline that enabled more people to make that choice not to go back to work. Um, Now we're enabling more people also to search for the best job, and I think that has a good aspect to it. I wish the program was adjusting so that in July and August, when it'll be easier to find a job than it was in January, when it'll be a lot safer to work than it was in January, that we didn't have the same extraordinary amount of support that we had back then.
0: Do you see any evidence that concerns about disease are continuing to keep people out of the labor force? For example, the prevalence of COVID-19 seems to be geographically distinct across the country linked to levels of inoculation. Is there any evidence to back that up, or is that just kind of a hunch that people have?
1: I think it's a hunch. Uh, I think it's a very plausible hunch. I mean, the problem is at this point, vaccination is mostly a choice. And it's a choice that's correlated with your income. Um, It's a choice that's correlated with your views about the risk associated with the virus. Let's say you didn't get vaccinated because you weren't that worried about the virus. Then you're not worried about taking a job. Um, it's correlated with views about whether or not you want to get back in a job and the like. So it's be hard to sort out. Um, it's also the case that the low vaccination states um, tend to be red states. Those states also opened up earlier, and so there's lots of different things moving um, in different directions. But I, I do find it plausible. I just haven't been able to become completely convinced about any quantification of it.
0: In the introduction. I mentioned the way in which this episode could affect what's called job scarring. And this is based on a memo that we have by Lisa Kahn and Jesse Rothstein, where when people enter the labor force and it's a particularly bad time, that can shadow their entire careers actually. What do you see, Jason, as longer run effects of this COVID-19 episode on labor markets and perhaps on the economy more broadly?
1: Yeah, I'm worried about labor market scarring. I have this hope, not based on any evidence at all, that if you didn't work for this past year, employers will understand why that was. They won't hold it against you or treat it as a signal in the way that they normally would, and so that the scarring may be less severe this time than it was in previous recessions. But that's a hope. Um, That might be wishful thinking. that's something economists can study five or 10 years from now.
0: But in previous recessions, everybody knew that like 2008, 2009 was really bad or 1980, 1981 when I actually entered the labor market was really bad and people weren't given a pass because those widespread well-known recessions occurred. So I hope you're right, but maybe it will be similar to that even in this most dire of economic circumstances.
1: Yeah, and that's one reason why I think it's so important to figure out everything we can to get people back into work as as quickly as possible.
0: Jason, I mentioned also in the introduction that you've had very high-level policy experience. You were the chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors under President Obama. You served in the White House in the Clinton administration. So I'd like to ask you a question I've asked of other members of the Council of Economic Advisors including Greg Mankiw, who was the chair of the Council of Economic Advisers under President George W. Bush, and Maury Opsfeld and Jay Shambaugh, who served with you on the CEA. The question is this, how does economic analysis inform policy decisions? Do politicians listen to economists or do they just cherry pick whatever economic analysis they want in order to support positions that they already had. What's your experience with that?
1: I mean, I had a dream of an experience. Um, President Obama really listened to us. And when I say listened, that didn't mean he did what we told him to do. Um, Sometimes he listened and disagreed with us on the substance. I think more often he listened, agreed with us on the substance, and might have made a different political judgment. You know, we might say, Jason, that's a really small issue that you're pointing out and it's gonna upset everyone enormously or Jason, you're right, but it'll never pass Congress. And so what I saw him do was t- listen to the economists, listen to the political advisors and figure out how to factor it all together. And that's the way I think it should work. I certainly would not have wanted him to do everything I told him to do would have been a disaster of a presidency if that had happened.
0: <laughs> well, that's a real modest statement on your part. Um, I guess you're not gonna run for president in 2024 based on that statement.
1: Right, and no, um, what I mean, seriously, it's also, and I, I would have led to bad economic advice too. If I thought that I was giving the actual final thing that was going to definitely happen, I'd probably factor politics in more than you know. I tried to. You know, you're not oblivious to politics, but I don't think you wanna do too much of it because in the White House, there's a lot of people around the table factoring politics in. You don't need the one economist at the table to be doing too much of it as well.
0: And economists more than others perhaps should understand comparative advantage. Exactly. So following up on that, um, was there a way in which political considerations affected the choice of economic policies to get them passed and also to make them more durable? In an earlier Account Fact Chats podcast, I interviewed a political scientist, Jacob Hacker of Yale, and he also wrote a memo for us, who spoke about what political scientists call policy feedback. Policy feedback is a way to get support for policies and to ensure their durability through gaining public support. Jacob used the example of social security in the 1930s, and then more recently, the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, as examples of policies that gained a lot of public support and became durable as a consequence of that. What did you learn about policy feedback, even as an economist who was sort of, as you said, on the other side of the table about some of these issues? What did you learn that work um, that informs your views
1: of meeting today's challenges,
0: given your experience in Washington?
1: I've seen some things that didn't work out from policy feedback. There was something called the Cadillac tax and the Affordable Care Act that was a tax on high premium health plans. It was pretty similar to what a lot of economists from across the political spectrum would recommend, but it got portrayed as you know taxing people on their health insurance as opposed to making their health insurance more affordable. And it ended up being repealed before it could ever go into effect. So I dread that. Um, the place where I think the lesson is really important is a carbon tax, which I think is the number one best policy for climate change. Not the only one, but the most important. And that's why I think it's so important to tie the carbon tax directly to payments for people. Um, I think that's better policy. But I also think if we ever got a carbon tax into law, and every household in the country got a dividend every year, and it was called a carbon dividend, and it was a separate check that they got, um, that no one would ever want to get rid of that carbon tax once we had it.
0: Yeah, we have a number of memos on the carbon tax by my colleague, Gib Metcalf, who is also not just my colleague at Tuss, but he was at the Treasury when I was there as well. And he has some really important and interesting work supporting the carbon tax. As, as you mentioned, this is one of the most um, popular programs among economists. We had economists from both sides of the political spectrum arguing for an econo- uh, a carbon tax and signing a letter in support of it. So let's hope that this can in fact be a popular economic policy among not just economists, but the general public as well. So Jason, thank you very much for taking the time to speak with me today. I've always enjoyed your insights, both about economics and how economics works in the political
1: process. Well, thanks for chatting and for of fact.
0: This has been Econofact Chats. To learn more about Econofact and to see the work on our site, you can log into www.accountaFact.org. You can subscribe on our site to our newsletter that will let you know when we publish new memos and new podcast episodes. Please feel free to share this podcast and our memos with friends, colleagues, and on social media. The Conifact is a publication of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. Thanks for listening.